0: Hey, friends, looking for some great business content other than right here on Accelerate? Then check out C Suite TV and watch in depth interviews with business content for C Suite leaders and entrepreneurs, including an interview with me, your favorite podcast host. And it's all on demand. Watch and get insider secrets on demand by going to C Suite That's C TV.com. Business Insights on Demand. Okay, let's do the show. Yeah. It's time to Accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 482 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. So, we're closing in fast on episode 500. You'll want to stay tuned. We're going to have a lot of fun with that episode. So, if you like Accelerate, that would really help us out if you take a minute, subscribe to the show, left us a review. We're trying to do all we can to make this a valuable experience for you. So, if you get a second, you're listening on your phone, pause, subscribe, use the podcast app on your phone to subscribe, leave a quick review or accelerate, and then come right back. So, joining me on the show today is Kelly Riggs. He's one of my favorite people in this business. Kelly is the creator of the Business Locker Room. He's an author, a speaker, a podcaster. Wrote a book with my all-time favorite titles called Quit Whining and Start Selling. Now he started a new venture with his son, Robbie, called Countermentors. It's all about teaching leaders and professionals how to survive and thrive in the four generation workplace. Now think about that. Four generations in the workplace at one time. Well, let's jump right into it. Kelly Riggs, welcome back to Accelerate.
1: Wow, great to be with you, Andy. Thanks so much. Well,
0: my pleasure. It's been so long. I mean, you were one of my first guests. I mean, in the grand scheme of things. So actually,
1: actually, we should tell the audience you were first a guest of mine, and uh, I, I didn't do anything that scared you off, so you invited me to be on your show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, no, it was a great experience, and you—I always remember you at the you know, radio voice.
1: Oh, well, thanks. So, didn't you,
0: do, I, haven't you, didn't you do radio at some point in the past?
1: You know, I did it uh, right. many, many moons ago. I was uh, my, a partner and I co-owned a sports media production company. And as a matter of course, they said, you should have a radio show. I mean, we, we were doing like scoreboard shows and all kinds of things. And so I did. I wound up hosting a sports radio talk show and, and just absolutely had a blast with it. Had a blast. Really enjoyed it. And based in Oklahoma where you are? It was, yes. We were on a uh, Cox station here, a big AM station, and uh, in fact, it was on Saturday nights, Andy, and the interesting thing about it is AM radio on Saturday nights back in 2001-ish, uh, they, I think they were number 13 on the book, <laughs> and uh, w- within uh, two quarters, I think, we'd gone to number one because, I mean, we we, we just invited great guests. I mean, it's the whole secret, right? The get great guests yeah. Ask some questions, get out of the way, and uh, and we did we did we went to number one in a couple of books, so it was it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of sports enthusiasm here it's it's all based around college not so much yeah, so I uh, say Tulsa
0: and OU and OSU Yeah, I
1: mean even back then we didn't have uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder but I mean you have people that are Cowboy fans, Dallas Cowboys and Kansas City Chiefs but it was basically driven by the Sooners and the Cowboys of Stillwater so of OSU so it was mm-hmm. good it was good fun
0: not the, what's what's Tulsa the Golden Hurricanes or something Yeah, or?
1: that's exactly right. Golden Hurricane. Well, golden done. Golden Hurricanes. Now what the hell is a Golden Hurricane? Could not even begin <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> and, and and why it's a mascot in landlocked Oklahoma? Oklahoma. I have no idea.
0: <laughs> I could have understood, you know, dirty hurt, dirty tornado, or something like that. But
1: absolutely, uh, yeah, we do a tornado or two, unfortunately, here sometimes uh, quite badly. But uh, yeah, it well, makes more.
0: sense. The big news for Oklahoma: you guys are the seismic capital of the United States now. It used to be cal- used to be California I always had to worry about earthquakes, but now it's
1: Oklahoma. Well, tornadoes weren't enough. Uh, we, we needed more natural disasters, so we just decided <laughs> to add earthquakes to the to the menu. Now you can just kind of dial up what you want.
0: Yeah, excellent, excellent. So how often do you feel like a, a trembler?
1: You know, I've only actually felt uh, a couple, and, and it was bizarre. We, we were actually doing some remodeling in our home. We have a two-story, and, and because they were working downstairs, my wife and I were sleeping in uh, the uh, bedroom upstairs. And we woke up one Saturday morning, and it felt like a, a train and a and a squadron of B fifty two bombers was going by, and the whole house was shaking. Wow. I'm like, "Holy cow! What is that?" And you know, because I'd never been in an earthquake and had no idea. And my wife's like, "I think that's a that's an earthquake," and I man, it was scary. I mean, it was freaking. Yeah, it really was. So, uh, yeah. but just a couple of times enough that we could feel it.
0: Yeah, at least with with tornadoes, you can. Feel like you can go somewhere, right? And you can go in the basement, go in the shelter.
1: Yes. Yeah, it it, yeah. it is a cottage industry in Oklahoma for uh, storm shelters, and rightfully so. I mean, it's yeah, scary stuff.
0: yeah, yeah. That is very scary. All right. So, first thing I want to talk about is you've got a new venture, and we're going to talk about some sales stuff in a bit. Yes. But, but, sure. But for part of our audience, know, we've got our audience works in sales. We work in companies. We work in multi generational workplaces. Um, and so you've got a new venture, Counter Mentors, where you're really sort of talking about this issue.
1: Yeah, quite a bit. It, it's really interesting how we came at. It. I, I work with my son. We work together. And uh, he and I have enjoyed what we call, what we coined the term, counter-mentor relationship where I mentored him through high school and college. But once he got out into the workplace, and he's a consultant in his own right, has his own shop, uh, but there was—he was always coming to me with ideas and thoughts, and and of course the millennials, of which he is one. Andy, they they bring a tremendous amount of value to the workplace because mm-hmm. of technology and community and social and all those things. And uh, so many times, rather than try to figure it out on my own, I would just you know get it from him. So we began to talk about it a lot, and and when I started doing what I'm doing now, a dozen years ago some of the first engagements i had were from companies saying we're really challenged in leading and managing effectively with millennials i mean we're just so different and the perspectives are all over the board and we don't get it you know you know how boomers are these millennials you know wow and so many times we would i would go in and and do training around that Well, Robbie, my son, he experienced it on the other end. You know, he was getting the, how old are you, and what kind of idea is that? And, oh, look, we've never done it that way here. (laughs) You know, all that routine. Listen, son, that's not the way we do it around here. Yeah, that's not the way we do it here, pal. So anyway, we, we began to talk about this stuff, and we recognized that a lot of the things we were seeing from two different perspectives, we had the same sort of ideas about. And we developed a methodology for training boomer leaders and millennial employees, and of course now you have millennials who are, are in leadership positions as right. well, but getting them all to understand how, how you can create an environment where both generations can thrive, you can leverage the skills and wisdom of each, and you can really do something phenomenal with this. And it, and it was just groundbreaking. I mean, immediately people began to say, hey, you need to come and talk to us. And and I really found it to be extraordinarily valuable in sales candy because I know you know as well as I do managing the millennial salesperson uh, the same same kinds of challenges you know but uh, they they're now being introduced to uh, all of the things like social selling and social media and technology and tools and apps and everything and if you can't stay with the program at our age in in order to manage them effectively then you're going to lose them and you're going to ha- you're going to have a big challenge attracting Ah, uh, that that high-powered millennial sales talent—that is the future of the company.
0: Yeah, well, future of the economy. So, Absolutely. so you talk about the four-generation workplace. So I was sort of stuck at three: a Boomer, Gen X, the the unfortunate group in the middle there, uh, millennials, and
1: well, I tell you, what, Gen, Gen, are you,
0: talking about Gen Z now.
1: Gen Z would be four, and actually, in but they're just coming online. They're just beginning to enter the workforce at around the age of eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Um, but it's really interesting in some places you'll actually find find five generations because you still find some of our parents still working in their late seventies and sometimes early eighties in that same workplace. So on the rare occasion, it can actually bump up to five generations.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I was trying to think about that Is, is yeah, I mean some people are obviously being forced to work longer. Right, I mean, just yeah, uh, changes in the economy and retirement you know, and the cost of living's gone up, and so on. So yeah, people are definitely uh, not just boomers, but even whatever that generation is before the ones that were too young to be our parents, but too old to be yes, boomers. Uh,
1: I think I think typically they're called the Silent Generation.
0: Oh, right, really? the Silent Generation. Okay, so I guess one thing that's that's really sort of interesting to think about is what do Gen Z think about millennials?
1: Well, it's interesting because they are different uh, a gentleman by the name of Tom Kalopoulos uh, wrote a book called the Gen Z effect and one of the interesting things about them is they have actually grown up uh in, in the 2008 economic downturn and so there's there's some economic security issues that they really care about they're much more entrepreneurial than their millennial brethren uh they, Wait, they tend more, to be more entrepreneurial yeah, in the sense that they want to work on their own. They don't want to have any dependency. They they grew up seeing uh, what can happen when you lose your life savings and companies go broke and, you know, those kinds of things. So they, they share their millennial brethren's background. I mean, clearly they are um, digital natives. And I like to say, they they not only grew up with technology, they come out of the womb tweeting about it. So, well, I mean, they, they, you know, they hit the ground running. Well, they really are
0: the first generation to be completely digital. Yeah,
1: absolutely. 100%. And, and it's, it's really interesting because they, they bring a little bit of different flavor to the workplace, but they're just getting there. So, I mean, they're very, very, very young in, in that process, but they're going to change the workplace. Now, What happened in terms of workplace dynamics is uh, a little over a year ago, um, the millennials became the most populated part of the workforce. They Mm -hmm. now they are the majority. So you and I we're out, (laughs) all right. And uh, of course, boomers are talk for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> boomers boomers are retiring in mass. I tell you who's forgotten in all of this is nobody talks about Gen X. Well that's why and, I told them so
0: that called them the middle they have sort of the middle child syndrome here is that uh, you know they sort of get overlooked. They're not the the boomers like the oldest child, the millennials are like the youngest child. Is yeah,
1: middle child syndrome, sort of overlooked. There's no doubt about that. And and it's interesting that uh, my son and I, of course, we, we do a video podcast together, as you know, and, yes. and they, he, he loves to put it all on me. He's like, you know, Dad, you, you, you boomers are always talking about how bad we are, we're the trophy generation, we're the snowflakes and the cupcakes, and we're entitled and all this kind of thing. But he said, who raised us that way? Yeah, <laughs> so it's very hard to get away from. It's either the boomers or, or the early Gen Xs that raised these kids as "quote unquote" helicopter parents to be the way they are, and we did not allow them to fail, and we gave them every opportunity to, uh, you know, walk around the barriers instead of having to climb over to whatever the case may be. So it, well, it yeah, really it, it Simon Simon Cynic.
0: Problem. Have you seen yeah. Simon Sinek's video? He has got a video talking about this. One hundred percent. Yeah, it's a great Absolutely. video.
1: I, I love his whole shtick when he talks about it's a wrong word to use, but I, I love his whole explanation when he says, "Is that kids t- today don't actually have to uh, develop interpersonal skills because they do everything on apps, right? So they don't have to say yes when they mean no, and no when they mean yes, and if they don't like someone, they just swipe left, and if they like them, they swipe right." Mm-hmm. I just think that's so funny. So and then they get into the workplace, and they have to learn to interact with a, a generation that's you know mostly in charge and boomers and the perspectives are so different, their values are different, and, and yet they intersect in some very, very interesting ways. And once you understand those things, you can really make some some terrific strides in creating that, that incredible high-performance workplace that we all th- care about.
0: All right. So what are some of those
1: points of intersection? Well, th- to, to Robbie and I, w- one of the keys are, and the things that we saw over and over and over, is both generations, boomer and millennial, Talk a lot about the, the the idea of respect. They both want respect, but they see it completely different. My, my dad's generation that I grew up, you know, he being raised by you—you you did not ask your dad why because that was disrespectful. You know, you just did what you were told. You kept your mouth shut and did what you were told. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you respected people because of their position, their authority, their title, that you know the teacher, the coach, the policeman. yeah, you, you did not question those people. they <clears throat> they demanded your respect because of who they were or expected they, to, it for sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and today's millennial is, I will respect you once you earn it. You know they they really care about respect. So they'll come into a workplace where they've been interviewed, recruited, hired. And, and they're now being paid. But their, their thought process is, well, I'm going to wait and see if my boss deserves my respect. And so if they don't treat me with respect, I will not respect them. Well, that's completely ridiculous to a boomer. It's like, listen, son, <laughs> cupcake, we hired you. And because you're I'm the boss and you're not, then I expect you to respect me? And they just laugh. It's like, uh, I don't think so. So if you can get on the same page that that we both value respect, and if we can set some really simple ground rules in the beginning that says, look, you deserve the respect and I am going to respect you and treat you with respect, but because I am the boss, I expect the same in return. You know, the interesting conversation with a millennial is, why do you deserve to be respected from the get-go, but the boss doesn't? And when you ask it that way, they think, Huh, well I've never really thought about that. And the reason is is you know some of these general generalizations or generalities are true because they they're easily observable and so many of the the millennials have grown up sort of self-absorbed, self-contained. I mean they're they're the most highly connected generation there is but the most socially isolated because they're doing it all over the internet, right? Or our vast majority of mm-hmm, us. So mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really don't have that sense. So once you open their eyes a little bit and say, no, wait a minute, if you deserve to be respected from the beginning, why doesn't your boss deserve to be respected from the beginning? Wouldn't that be a good place to start? And, and r- <laughs> I will say rational millennials will say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. So we can do that.
0: Well, okay. So what about the irrational ones?
1: Uh, well, I don't do irrational. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the, the irrational ones, I, I you know, I think it's like anything. When we're teaching leadership at a basic level, Andy, and someone comes into your your culture and you're interviewing them, I think it's incumbent upon the leader to explain who we are, the way we do things, the kind of people we are, and what the expectations are going to be. And if you don't like those or don't want to be a part of them, hey, no harm, no foul, no judgment. We just can't use you here. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we just want to create a good fit. So I think another one of those great intersections is making sure that you both identify with the same expectations, they're aligned, and you're willing to live by those expectations. And, and an irrational person will just say, no, thank you, and that's okay, actually.
0: Well, I mean, I, I guess I was getting to this Is there difficulty on the part, let's say, of a boomer or a Gen X manager who's interviewing a, a millennial to? really express what their expectations are excuse me expectations are in terms that that are you know understood the same way that they're being expressed
1: yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, the difference is 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 the perceptions of the world and what we think is important. Here's a really good example. Many millennials don't don't understand why why do I have to be in the office at eight o'clock sitting in my chair? I can do more work at Starbucks between 7:30 and 8:30 than you can get done in half a day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of their thought mm-hmm. process. But if, if the boss says, listen, here's the deal. We really want to create an atmosphere where people are here, and here's why you know, we, we have customers calling and we have this camaraderie or, you know, whatever whatever the why is behind why we do things. Millennials are okay with that. What they're not okay with is, look, just sit down do what you're told. Don't question. It's not, you know, it's above your pay grade. Just be here. They're not going to tolerate that. And when, when we're training millennials or training boomer leaders, rather, we're telling them that, listen, millennials are okay with things that you do that they don't agree with. If you if they understand the perspective and why you're doing them and what your thought process is, I mean nobody agrees with everybody a hundred percent of the time. No matter what your generation is, in fact, leading millennials effectively is not any different than leading any generation. I mean it's it's nuts to be like saying you gotta you gotta lead women completely different. No, you don't. You just have to be an effective leader. Oh, well, you you have to lead Hispanics differently. No, you don't. You just have to be a good leader and understand what it takes. And I tell you, one of the challenges is so many times in the workplace, we allow people to do generalizations and biases against generations that we would never accept in any other terminology. A really good example is uh, my son and I were working with an engineering firm and the CEO, who, who happened to be a female, several times, said, well, these millennials this, and these millennials that. And she'd had a couple of experiences with a couple, like two millennials, that didn't go very well. Right. And finally, I said, let me let me ask you a question. Would you be completely comfortable with substituting the word female for millennial? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, just substitute the word female. Say, all these females, they She goes, oh my goodness, that's that's offensive. I go exactly. You're dropping everybody into the same bucket, and you have a data set of exactly two. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? You can't you can't generalize like that. And I think that's where people get in trouble. Now, there's how did some how did
0: some of that start though? I mean, is because I agree, hundred percent. It's my experience with millennials, not just as a parent, but as somebody who's worked with hundreds and many thousands over the years. Sure is. This is to me is one of the most impressive generations, right? I mean, I'm just in awe of the the smarts and the energy and the drive and the the willingness to work hard sure. uh, that I see in this in the millennial generation. So, how did some of these these generalizations sort of come to pass? Is it just because the parents and the boomers are sort of you know reflecting their own shortcomings onto onto the millennials?
1: Their no, own. no, I don't. I don't think so. I, th- I think the answer to this is is fairly simple. And I tell you where where it begins is. Boomers forget that when they came into the workplace, they were different too. <laughs> you know, I mean, whether you're late boomer, or early Gen X, you know, we we were the people that, according to the old timers, you know, we were a bunch of dope smokers and rock and rollers, and you know, all we cared about was you know cruising town, and you know, I mean, we were different, and we forget that. It's really that. Uh, All of that begins because boomers observe uh, the new generation, the younger generation, the millennials, and they are different. They're different because of technology. They're different because they were raised with different sets of ideals and values. In many cases, they're raised in a different culture. So they come into the workplace with much different expectations, much different ideals about what's acceptable, and because many of them were, were always told Do what you want. Explore yourself. There's no wrong answers. And they weren't allowed to fail because of helicopter parents. Hey, they came they come into the workplace with very different perspectives on life. And boomers seeing those things went, oh, my gosh, these these entitled uh, brats, trophy generation cupcakes. You can't say anything to them because they get their feelings hurt. A lot of that is true. But it doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them different in in ways that if you just turn turn the page over, we're different to them, right? It's just we just happen to be the ones in charge.
0: Yeah, it's sort of ironic when I think about it because you know if if millennials really understood, you know, we talk about understanding each other, but I, I think one of the things that's missing from the millennial standpoint, and that's not a criticism, it's just maybe a criticism of the schools, <laughs> is that. Yeah, you know, this boomer generation. You go back to the '60s and the '70s, where people were really afraid this country was coming apart at the seams because you know the protests in the streets and the 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 anxiety about the war in Vietnam. And and you know this was a generation that that was yeah, you know, in many respects, sort of a you know very revolutionary generation. Yeah, there's no question about and, it. And now they're just seen as well. They're the parents, and they're sort of the old people, but. Yeah, they sometimes kids need to go back. And, you know, we just had these, you know, series of women's marches with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. But really, for the first time, almost since the the late 60s, early 70s, where there's, you know, these mass demonstrations of uh, that was, you know, the people they're working for now, the millennials are working for it. These people are out protesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely right, and, and in that sense, they have a lot in common, don't they? I mean, they yeah. you know are both revolutionaries in that regard. But yeah, you know, one of the big things is uh, one of the biggest impacts, I think, is is just uh, for whatever reasons, societally and culturally and all that. I mean, uh, the nuclear family changed dramatically. The definition of family changed dramatically. And a guy by the name of Benjamin Spock, you know, mm-hmm. taught an entire generation of parents that. You, you don't need to discipline your kids. You're going to ruin them. You're going to teach them violence. You're going to do all this stuff. And so even inside the schools or inside the home, uh, kids were raised much differently, like yourself. That's not a criticism. It's just an observation. When you, when you look at the results of what you've got, you've got to walk your way backwards and see what the contributing factors are. And it's not that simple, but it, those are huge contributors. The, the, ultimately, the point is You have people that come into the workplace They have much different ideas. It doesn't mean they can't be effective. They have much different techniques in terms of technology and so forth. Doesn't mean they can't be effective. And you've got a whole group of leaders who have been successful. And suddenly you've got a bunch of new faces coming in saying, hey, old guy, old geezer, hey, we know how to do it better than you do. And to them, that's completely disrespectful. And so what they do is they shut down and they quit learning and they won't listen to a different voice. And it creates all kinds of problems inside the workplace. So what what we do, Andy, is say, hey, listen, what's the object? You know, what's the objective of your leadership? Is it to win? Is it to be right? Is it to get over? Or is it to create a great company and great results? And when they go, well, it's just, you know to create great results. Well, then let's quit holding on to the way we've always done it and and, you know, not have not invented here syndrome. And let's figure out how we can use the best of both worlds and become a better company. When it's framed that way, most people are like, okay, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's going to make my skin crawl in some instances, but yeah, I'm with you. Let's go do that.
0: But we're always talking about the fact that the boomers are in charge and you know, the millennials are in the workforce. But as you said, the millennials now are in leadership. There's lots of companies where that exists. What are you seeing with the other way around where millennials are in the leadership and you've got boomers that are in the workforce and you know, trying to reconcile those differences?
1: Well, I, <laughs> I got to tell you, that's the funniest thing in the world to me. I mean, it cracks me up to no end because you, you get a millennial and I've mentored and coached Lots of them. But they all of a sudden, you know, they've been that generation that the boss won't listen to me and the boss won't. That's not new. I hate to tell them this, but you know, we had the same problem. Sure. And leaders and employees have always had that dynamic. You've always had a group of micromanagers uh, who wouldn't listen, do it my way. And that, and it had nothing to do with your generation. That's just, it's a leadership problem. So suddenly they become leaders and they freak out. They can't believe, wow, you know, uh, my generation, I can't get them to do anything. And I'm like, yeah, are you listening to yourself? Uh, you know, you're starting to find out what it's like to be a leader. It is way, way harder than you thought. And it really gets fun when they're managing boomers. And and that that's funny, too. And boomers get a kick out of it, too. Because I, I've actually run into a lot of boomers who really enjoy being led by younger, more enthusiastic, more passionate kids, they call them. And uh, they get a kick out of it. And that's not always true, but uh, I think it's really funny to watch a millennial move up into the, the level of management leadership and then suddenly realize it's not everything they thought it was cracked up to be. It's not that they want to give it up, but they realize it's way harder than they thought.
0: Well, which has always been the case, right? I, mean, I think anybody moving up into management, that's that's been an issue, right? It always seems like easy, looks easy from the outside and and once you get in there and you have to start managing
1: people... Um, and working, oh, yeah. As and, I like to say, uh, every you know, when you're an employee and you're a high performer, or you you know you perceive yourself to be, you're always lamenting the fact that you know the boss won't let me do anything. Why why didn't the boss just let me make these decisions and let me just do what I do? And then that person becomes <laughs> becomes a leader, and within three months they're like, you know, you just can't find good people. <laughs> it's It's you know, it's amazing how the perspectives change when the responsibilities are thrown at you.
0: So listening to some of your podcast with with Robbie is, you know one of the I don't know conclusions perhaps that may be too strong a word, but but one of the sort of takeaways I have from 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 his perspective was is that this perception that you know boomer managers are, yeah, you know, sort of hypocritical. Right, it's always about do as we say, not as we do. Right, I mean, is 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 that sort of a, a common issue, you theme you see coming up?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of truth to it. Of course, he and I have a lot of fun, you know, uh, with our banter on the show. But the the really interesting thing is is if you just forget about generations and go look at the data and how many. Managers or leaders are considered to be effective. You know the numbers are pretty abysmal. You're talking about less than a third. Typically, you know, seventy percent of employees when they when they leave an organization, according to Gallup and a whole other group of researchers, they're leaving because of the people they work for. Uh, I remember there was a Conference Board report uh, some years ago in which one one in three managers was considered to be an effective leader. The reality is, throw generations out. Most leaders are just not very good. Now, it's a systemic issue from my perspective. We take people, we promote them to leadership, Andy. We don't train them. We don't say, listen, we promoted you because of your knowledge or skill or performance, but we want you to be a team leader and create team results and grow your people and all that. Instead, we just think, well, because you were good at it here, clearly you're going to be good at it as a leader, which is about the dumbest assumption ever because it's two completely different set of skills. For example, in our world in sales, You can be a great salesperson, and typically we take the best salesperson and make them a manager. And then when they stink at it, we we can't understand it. Well, Mm -hmm. it's because they never learn that set of skills. Leadership, as as all the leadership gurus will tell you, is a set of skills that you can learn. Now, clearly... Some leaders are better than others because there's a, it's sort of the art and science, you know, there's, there's skills to learn, but interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence and those things really will play into how effective you can be. But you can learn a set of skills that will make you a, an above average leader, but we don't do that in corporate America. We rarely train people when we elevate them to positions of management. So suddenly, You get a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing in terms of leadership. Doesn't make them bad people. Doesn't mean they're not competent, but they're just not very effective at developing teams. And suddenly they don't know what to do. So when they can't get people to do what they want, they become micromanagers. And many of them, they resort to that very quickly because that's what they grew up with. That's what they've seen. And now they sort of get it like, wow, like I was saying earlier, wow, you just can't find people who will do anything. And they get entrenched. And so millennials then, fast forward, come into this workplace and they, they see people who are you know, very set in their ways. We've always done it this way. Hey, uh, youngster, we've, we've been successful. Why don't you sit down and you know get a few years under your belt before you start telling us what to do? And that may be the first time they've ever heard anything like that. And it and it really sets them back quite a ways. Well, and I
0: think one of the things you're talking about, to my way of thinking, is that, that we may train managers how to manage but we don't train them how to lead
1: exactly right exactly and, was look, and, look at our world in sales it, it, from where you and I come from on the sales side management is what CRM and and it's budgeting and forecasting and its reports and you know it's product knowledge and all this so we, we elevate a guy or, or a man or a woman to to clearly into a leadership position sales manager and what do they focus on? CRM, budgeting, forecasting, and all that. But they forget that their role is now to develop a team of salespeople. So we didn't train them to do that. And they really they just think that because of their natural charisma or you know their their ability to get things done or their drive, they'll just work harder and they'll be good at it. And it's just not true.
0: No, no. And and you've written an article recently about this, really from the sales perspective about uh difference between salesman or scorekeepers and sales leaders, I guess was was the distinction you made. Being sort of yes. the managers, we're sort of talking about basically just scorekeepers, right? We're gonna manage activities, we're gonna manage results uh, from those activities, but we're not really focused on on leading.
1: Correct. Well you've you've had a good friend of mine, I'm sure a good friend of yours as well on your show a couple of times, Mike Weinberg, and he he and I have very, very similar philosophies about all this. I mean if if you've got uh, sales leaders, I, I call them sales leaders instead of managers, because I think the leadership side is the more difficult part, oftentimes the, the part that's absent. But it, when your sales leaders are not trained to coach and teach and develop, and they're spending way more time doing administrative work and, and things that the C-suite level is, you know, told them they have to do, and they're not out developing people, and they don't learn skills like how to create your own sales plans, and they don't understand how to create accountability and all that. I mean, it, it it makes for a very difficult proposition because the leaders become frustrated, the salespeople become frustrated, and then the C-suite becomes frustrated because we're not getting the results we want, and yet it's a it's a system problem, and we're not fixing the system. And so we just, we, we rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and everybody's heard that old definition of insanity, but that's what we're doing.
0: So, I mean, is there uh, a fear, perhaps, that you know, as we generate more and more data about our business operations, sales in particular. There's a lot more transparency in terms of the sales process and and you know, the tools that enable you to collect this data. That, you know, the natural tendency is to say, well, we've got this data. Let's let's use it. But the way it's used is more as a you know command and control as opposed to a leadership function.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, in the the I I like to say it's a pay-me-now-or-pay-me-later proposition. I mean, you're going to pay, right? So you can either choose to invest your money in developing your leaders and training your salespeople, or you will pay in missed quotas and and turnover and everything else. So the, the challenge becomes that we have all this data and so we try to manage by that data, and, and yet we're not addressing the things that would really make us better. But you know, strengthening our leadership skills, strengthening our sale our selling skills with our with with our salespeople, and, and it becomes a, a significant issue because we're so reactive and in the moment, you know, especially in, in the Fortune 500 world, in the public companies, it's uh, earnings per share this quarter. So we can't even think long term many times and it, it becomes a real challenge. But if, if if you look at the way people think about training and development, what they'll often say, Andy, is when, when times are good and we're blowing and going and man, we're just new product and you know great market and all that and we're making a lot of sales. Well, we don't have time to train right now. We, we can't train right now. We just don't have time. I mean, we're, we we got to take care of this business. Well, then everything slows down. We go into a trough economically or some sort of slowdown or downturn, and now we can't train because we don't have the money. No, right now we just can't afford it. So suddenly we're never training because we have two built-in excuses. In, in one instance, we don't have the time. In another instance, we don't have the money. So when are we ever going to train? And so we just keep focusing on the data. Well, you know, if you'd make more calls and if you well listen, the number of calls I make have nothing to do with am I identifying the right business fit, the right opportunities, qualifying them effectively and a dozen other factors that are really important and all you're looking at is a number on a page that says how many calls per whatever I'm making. And that's not helpful because the sales leader is not training me in all of those other variables that are far more critical in converting opportunities, so you've just got a self-defeating system.
0: Yeah, it seems like it because I mean, when we look at and get back to the issue of you know those multi-generational workforces, the millennials coming in are coming in to the sales force at a time where it is so data-oriented. Is yeah, it's, it does to my mind think that seem that there are too few managers. <laughs> That are really devoting the time they need to devote to coach and this one on one and develop, as opposed to just yeah, let's just get them get their calls done. Let's you know make this number of contacts and so on.
1: Well, I, I don't want to leave people with the wrong idea. I mean, some people may think you know that I, that I don't really advocate for for numbers and data and analysis. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I'm a data freak. I, the more information I have. From my perspective, the better it is for me as a sales leader. The the real trick is to understand what the data is telling me, and then be able to translate it into the the coaching and training and development that will really impact those things. I mean, a, a really good example that, that I always like to use is you you can have someone out there who is uh, the the national leader in sales. Okay. They're they're the top person. And so they get all the awards and they get all the accolades and they have their annual performance review. And, and the sales manager who, you know, is a numbers guy but not a coach or a trainer, or developer, or leader, he looks at him and says, man, you had a fantastic year. Just incredible. But you know, I was I was looking at your numbers and I realized that your your calls per week average is is mediocre. And you know, you're doing far less presentations than, than than a third of our staff. Can you imagine what you would do if you could increase the number of calls you make? And I'm like, oh my word! I mean, you know, that's the entire point. You you think there's a a clear and defined link between number of calls per number of presentations per to results? And clearly, this guy just blew up that whole idea. And instead of changing the way you think about it and understanding there's a, there is a different connection, you're just locked into this old paradigm, and it's just it's just killing salespeople. Well, I think it is. I think one of the
0: things that I see is is that's different these days. Is and again, not placing a judgment on it necessarily, but but I don't see at least when I was started is is we were we had more freedom as salespeople. I mean the. Yeah, we had a process, we had, you know, methodologies we got trained in and so on, but but at least the people I worked for, and and I worked some big companies, is you know, they really wanted us to come to an understanding pretty quickly about through repetition about what really works for us. Right. right? And I sort of see this this individual aspect of selling sort of being pushed into the into the corner a little bit. And I think that's where the real strength, that's where we really tap into the strength of the individuals is saying, okay, well, yeah, we may have a process, yeah, we may have expectations for calls and so on, but yeah, this guy's just killing it.
1: And yeah, they're not making the same number of calls, and that's okay. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm jealous. I, I grew up in an environment where I was in a smaller company and we didn't have any real real, real training. We, nobody taught me a sales process. I had to go out and find it in you know from the books of the masters out there and, and sort of in, incorporate it into what I did. But I, I'll never forget when I became a, a sales manager and I had a guy come to me and he said, listen, I, I want to ask you, do you mind if I play golf a couple of times a week? And I said, uh, well, I mean, listen, here's my philosophy. If you hit your numbers, I really don't care what you do, as long as it's legal and ethical and moral, you know, but do you mind if I ask why? And he said, well, yeah. He says, you know, a lot of my doctors, I was in the medical business. Mm-hmm. Was, he said, a lot of my doctors, I can't get to them in the OR. I can't get to them in a the clinic because they're too busy. But, you know, I've got connections and, and they're playing golf and a lot of them are, you know, country club guys and that kind of thing. And I'm a big golfer and I think I can connect. And I said, listen, your methodology is up to you. Just remember, if you don't hit your numbers, you have to justify why you're on a golf course. And so he went out and he was the number two guy in the country. But I would never tell all of my other salespeople, okay, change a plan. Here's what we're doing. From now on, we're all going to play golf twice a week. Right. That would be as stupid as saying, hey, we're all going to make X number of calls per week. You know, in the sports world, when you're coaching an athlete, not every athlete has the same you know, talents and skills and so forth. So you can take two wide receivers. One's a 6'4", 220, and he's got a certain set of skills. And another one is, you know, 5'10", runs 4'3", and has a different set of skills. You coach them differently with the same objective in mind. I I think leading people is like that. You have to assess their skills, where they excel, what they do well, and, and tailor those into that general sales process that you have. Uh, but the problem is, is is I saw it, was we didn't have a sales process. I mean, you had too many people out there just going in a hundred directions and they didn't have any guidance whatsoever.
0: Well, yeah, I, we're going to wrap up here, but I think that was a great great phrase to wrap up with, which is to you coach people differently but with the same goal in mind. And yes. I think this is where too many sales teams are really restricting their upside. Is by being so focused on the process that they're not unleashing the power of the individual to go out and succeed to the way they can. Well, that's because we've never
1: done it that way here,
0: Andy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And there and there, there you Touché. have
1: the millennial, the millennial perception of the world of boomer managers. <laughs> exactly.
0: All right. Kelly, great as always to talk with you. So tell folks how they can find out more about you about talk about counter
1: mentors, your your great podcast you're doing with your son. Yeah, I appreciate that. You can find us in our podcast at countermentors.com. You'll see a mention of the book that's coming. All all of my work in my organization is bizlockerroom.com and that's where you can find all the stuff that I write uh, with regards to sales and leadership and so forth. Welcome to have you.
0: All right, great. Kelly, thanks again. And friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. Come back. Join me again tomorrow. And until then, I'd really appreciate if you take a second, go to iTunes, subscribe to this podcast, accelerate, leave a review. We want to hear what you think, what we're doing well, what we could do better to provide more value to you. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.